It reminded me a lot again about Vampire Diaries. Gender roles and age and class. Tuck everlasting sort of thing. <laughs> Why doesn't she like promenading more? Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm James Earl, getting really strong Frankenstein vibes, living in Milan, Italy. And I'm Melissa Hansen, trying to avoid blood at all costs in <laughs> San Francisco. Uh, this month we're reading Anatomy, a Love Story by Dana Schwartz. And we should begin with our standard spoiler alert reminder. We are going to be discussing the full book, so there will be spoilers. And this one does have a trick ending that I didn't see coming, but apparently everybody else does. You know, it, I wish I had been surprised by it. It was just, <laughs> yes, okay, again, stop listening right now, care about spoilers, but we're going to go straight to the twist ending. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, let's do it. It was that he was wearing mysterious gloves, and they kept on talking about Oh, he has those gloves. That was it? So our producer reminded me that at the very beginning, uh, which is maybe why I didn't catch it, there was a line about how he had children, but none of the names lined up with his name. And so it mm. was clear from the very beginning. Yes. But I didn't remember those little details. And I just thought surgeons wear gloves. But was that more satisfying? Were you shocked? Were you like, oh my God? I I don't know. I don't know if I was super shocked. I didn't have that moment, which I think a lot of people have when, I don't know, in other gothic novels, like in Jane Eyre, where the lady comes out of the attic. I didn't have that moment. So I think the reason why I wasn't totally shocked is the reveal was so slow. So at some point I like got it on an intellectual level and then it just like needed to be explained to me. But, you know, in those final chapters, there, it didn't have the like shocking moment. One thing I'm realizing is a lot of things happened before the twist ending, so maybe we should do a summary <laughs> in case people are not going to read the whole book before they listen to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give it a go. Do we have a timer? Three, two, one, go. Okay, so this is the story of Hazel, an intellectually curious, introverted, and aristocratic lady who lives in a castle. She wants to be a surgeon, which isn't a particularly prestigious branch of medicine in 19th century Scotland, but that's what she wants to do anyway. Her father is mysteriously out of the picture, and her mom doesn't really care about her. Um, she has an older brother who died in a plague, and there is another brother who's the heir, so Hazel's pretty much ignored. And then she dresses as a dude in order to attend med school, but she's found out. And separately, there's a guy named Jack who sometimes works as a resurrection man and gets bodies for the surgeons, but sometimes he also works in a theater. And... All the while, people are going missing, and they mysteriously disappear, and then they reappear, sometimes without a limb and stuff like that. And Hazel comes to understand that the top doctor man is maiming poor people in order to heal, heal rich people. And Jack is framed for the mysterious deaths, and Hazel saves him, maybe. You talked just so fast right there. Did you write that all down? <laughs> I had bullet points. I, well, those were the bullet points of the plot, so you nailed it. There's a lot of like different thematic elements I want to touch on, but I want to start off just in generally like talking about gothic novels. And because one thing that to your point of like you being surprised by the twist is I thought this book was going to have like strong gothic feels throughout the entire book. Yeah. I almost forgot halfway through the book that people were going missing and that there was like a strange gold liquid that was in play in the right. first chapter. Yes, I also sometimes forgot that people were going missing because that is the central mystery of the of the novel. And sometimes you get caught up in the character of Hazel and the love story stuff and Jack's situation. 
So one, just like in terms of this being a gothic novel, one of the characteristics of a gothic novel often is that none of the characters are particularly likable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of Hazel. Like she's not a particularly warm person that you are rooting for in any way other than, I don't know, I guess you want her to like overcome patriarchy and become a doctor, but you could see why people don't like her in the novel. Yeah. That said, Jack seemed entirely likable. Yeah. He just seemed like a good dude. I think Jack is easily like the best character in the book. Not liking Hazel, I feel like is called out really well by two doctors. So one is like evil doctor that's found the cure for immortality is pretending to be his own grandson. Mm-hmm. And then there's another doctor whose name I am forgetting, but only has one eye. And he's the one who handles the actual like messy sorts of parts of teaching and not the fancy parts of the teaching because he's willing to get his hands dirty. Right. And he goes to Hazel and was like, the reason I'm not going to teach you is not because I don't think that you're capable of it. I believe that a woman could be good at doing this. But what I really don't want to do is like teach a dilettante. Yeah. Which I thought was like a really interesting thing of like, you were going to take this knowledge and do nothing with it. Mm-hmm. And there is this sort of attack to a certain degree on like learning for learning's yeah. sake yeah. in the book. And he's like, you're not going to do anything with it. You're going to become like a baroness. Yeah. There, and there's also like wrapped up in that some resentment of her class mm-hmm. that she's aristocratic. Right, versus all the surgeons are like, you take this job to get out of poverty. Right, and that surgeon is coded as the lowest branch of medicine, apparently, according to the logic of the novel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that she, at the highest ranking female position one could occupy, wants to be the lowest status position. Mm-hmm. For him, he just like thinks that that's a dilettante, just like messing around, wanting to learn for learning's sake. It's also similar to one of the final conclusions of the book. He doesn't want to teach her because of the system like the system won't hire her Mm -hmm. and so because of this like systemic constraint it's not worth his time to teach her and that's very similar to what um dr beecham sort of says at the end is like these people systemically are not going to have good lives so we might as well make sure the people with good lives have eyeballs that work Yeah, there is like an element of like, we're operating within a system and we don't really need to push back on it. And I I think then you get like Hazel in actually doing doctoring from her castle realizes that like, I can change the system. I can be handling all the people who are going to the poorhouse hospital. Right. And like now they're all dying there and I'm like keeping people alive. Yeah. And I've like found the cure for this disease. Also, I feel like her figure out the cure for the disease immediately was a little bit fast. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that it's like pretty much the standard vaccine answer that every schoolboy knows. Yeah. But the interesting thing there for me is that the book seemed to be engaging with gatekeeping in medicine and that there seems to be a governing board that certifies doctors and that you can't operate outside of the system and that she does operate outside of that system and i think that that's really interesting particularly given the time period we're in and like trusting certified scientists who are doing research and not trying to look for healing practices outside of these systems because they don't they're not as rigorous and so dealing with that tension between Yes, the gatekeeping is there for a reason. Like the arguments that the doctors present, you know, you can't just operate outside of the system and be treating people. Like, then what are the certifications even worth if you can just do that? But because the gatekeeping is itself corrupt, like she has to operate outside of it in order to give care to 
the poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a book, so she's able to, like, her experimentation could have gone very poorly. Yeah. Like, I think we only see her lose one patient, which feels unlikely for, like, a young doctor who, like, doesn't know what she's doing and doesn't have a mentor. Yeah. The other thing about the privilege piece for her is I kept on thinking about this, where the only reason she's able to do any of this is because her brother, who is the heir, isn't there. Mm -hmm. She does a really bad job of, like, staying in her fiancé's good graces or her mother and brother's good graces. Like, the only reason she's able to do this is because she has access to all this money while her brother is still a child. And they're currently in London. And I don't think there's, like, really a reflection on that that much by Hazel of, like, wait, how do I maintain my position here? I think that she's like, oh, I'll just pass the exam and then my fiancé will, like, be super supportive of me being a surgeon. Yeah, I agree with all that. And it made me think that maybe the fact that we, like, forgot about people missing and this kind of thing and that she doesn't do this kind of reflecting, maybe that's all part of the logic of the novel Because she is so single-mindedly obsessed with gaining knowledge for its own sake that she forgets that these things are happening. Mm. And so maybe it's part of the logic of the novel that we're actually supposed to forget and get wrapped up in her, her quest for knowledge and for the position of surgeon. And in doing so, we, like, adopt her perspective and ignore all the other things. Yeah. Including self-reflection. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That does make sense. The gatekeeping piece also reminded me a lot of when I was in academia. I literally had a professor, a female professor, be like, I don't really want to like take on any more female grad students because they all just get pregnant and leave academia. And then why did I train them? Oof. There's an element where like the doctor who can like live forever is like, hey, you should just take this magic potion and you'll be able to become a doctor like a hundred years from now. And I'm like, unless you like really take some big swings at the system, the system's going to keep... <laughs> making Hazel's life very difficult. Mm-hmm. Like you have to live through a lot of different things. And I also don't know how you're going to get resources through all of this as a woman. Like I think it's very different than like living as a white man through decades and decades and centuries and centuries. Yeah. I wonder if there's a fanfic in there where, you know, similar to some Gen X feminists who are stuck in second wave feminism that she like lives through fourth wave feminism, but she's still very much first wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. like, that's the one, that's the first one she experienced, and it's going to keep on doubling down on, no, we're the moral center of the household. I feel like that's another thing. When people, like, live forever, <laughs> I, I mostly know this from vampire novels and TV shows. They're, like, immediately, like, with the times, other than, like, maybe, like, a slight gentleman, but it's like, oh, but that's, like, wonderful. I can have my own career, but he also, like, opens doors for me. And I'm like, no, no, no. If you were dating someone who was born in the 1800s, right. that would not be your dynamic. <laughs> No, (laughs) right, right. People just don't change their whole belief systems that readily. No, as the time just like happened, no. No, this is good fan fiction fodder is just like go super realistic. Like, of course she's a turf. I mean, she's she's a rich white woman. (laughs) Yeah. Which again, doesn't mean that she isn't marginalized in a lot of different ways as we see in the novel. But like, yeah, she's going to live until the present day. Right. I also thought it was interesting that at the end we have like an actual like immortality vial of liquid that can grant you immortality yeah that's a new gun on the wall yeah and there's a question of like do you take it like i think it reminded me a lot again about vampire diaries but like the reverse where there's um in the vampire diaries there's one vial of the cure which will turn you human and all vampires are trying to get it because they're all like i'm done with this vampire life i just want to be human again because that was the thing that was like most 
in my mind, it was interesting to have this vial where it's like, will Jack take it? Will Hazel take it? Of this, like, you'll survive anything, you'll live forever. But it's also the way that it's presented is not like a tuck everlasting sort of thing where it's like i was gonna bring up tuck everlasting as well like the, the stakes of it are really interesting because if hazel takes it she yeah. can live to a more progressive era if jack takes it he can just you know not die by hanging the next day right <laughs> and his options are literally do i die by hanging the next day or do i live forever right and that feels like those are high stakes way like, yeah those are high stakes those are on two different spectrums and we like never really get to go through his thought process about like he clearly end, ends up taking the vial but now he's going to live forever and hazel isn't like what's going on here yeah i feel like we just got really quick at the end there and i was like i want more discussion here why why is that like prison guard making you quick in this conversation no i need more talking yeah yeah and we just go straight to epilogue yeah so our producer just put a phone in front of my face that tells me that there's a sequel coming out in one week from when we're recording this and we didn't know about that <laughs> We can guess what's going to happen. Like, do we think Hazel will take the cure or the, the immortality curse? Could be a curse or a cure. What do we think it is? I don't think so, because I think a lot of the book is like a rebuttal against the God position that Beecham holds with both his immortality and his status in like patriarchy and so on. Like he is the keeper of knowledge, full stop. Like his book is the book. It seems like he's so far ahead of everybody else and since he's going to live forever and he seems to be pretty disciplined in how he operates like he's he's going to take this head start and just keep on going uh in the same way that like patriarchal power capitulates itself and she has very firmly situated herself outside of that god position like she is going to do independent research and help people in diverse ways and share knowledge and be more collaborative. I think that his God position is wrapped up with his immortality, and I don't think that she can inhabit that and maintain her more like feminist matristic status in the novel. If she loses that, I don't know where the novel goes. So her love for Jack won't be enough for her to take it, is what you're saying. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Does the second book have the subtitle, A Love Story? Cause, yes. Oh, no, it does. Okay, never mind. I mean, but you still can, because there are examples of when a character chooses, I don't want to take the cure, even though I have feelings for you. So Tuck Everlasting is an example, obviously, even though, like, Winnie is, like, a child. Yeah. Definitely age her up in the movie. Yeah. So that's more <laughs> I, of, like, a love. <laughs> you, your knowledge of Tuck Everlasting canon <laughs> far exceeds mine. It had Alexis Bledel in it from Gilmore Girls. This I didn't know either. I just remember Jesse being very charismatic. Yes, but it makes more sense when they're like the same age. They're both teenagers, which is why they aged up to each other. Anyways, the same thing happens originally in Vampire Diaries where Elena is dating Stefan and the season two finale is about there's a way for her to survive the sacrifice that's happening. If they give her vampire done first and because then when she dies during the sacrifice, she'll come back as a vampire. And she's like, I never wanted to be a vampire. I want to live and die as a human. Mm -hmm. I'd rather do that than like live with you forever because like that's just like not the life that I want to live obviously like being a vampire is way different because there's like you know to drink blood <laughs> and stuff right um yeah. but it's a similar choice of like there's a certain life that I want to live and it's usually about milestones around I want to have children and I, I don't want to like outlive my children or like my family and things like that and it's very grounded in that familial element yeah Versus I don't feel like Hazel has that grounding. Yeah, she doesn't care. It doesn't seem like she cares that much about outliving her family. Right. Like they could come and go. I don't, 
see her caring in the same way that Beecher doesn't care. Like Beecham outlives his family and and he doesn't care. I can't help but discuss this in contrast to Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. where there's like similarly Victor Frankenstein is obsessed with knowledge for its own sake. Tells his wife he's definitely going to be there on their wedding night and then he's not there on their wedding night because he's studying and like he ignores all these things. But then... As his creature starts killing people, like when Victor Frankenstein starts outliving people, his story becomes tragic and he starts pursuing his creature rather than knowledge to the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. But these characters don't seem to do that. And I can't help but think that like the character of Hazel is meant to be, I don't know how to phrase this, but maybe like an answer or like fan fiction. Like what if Victor Frankenstein did not choose to use his power to create life and like basically occupy that God position Mm -hmm. and Beecham is both monster and Frankenstein in this. And then Hazel in choosing not to occupy the position of God and creator, but instead do be healer and like occupy that role that she's like correcting some of the issues Frankenstein Mm -hmm. so she can be obsessed with knowledge and focus it on healing rather than creation or whatever but like she's betrothed to her cousin in the same way that Victor Frankenstein was she's like introverted and ignores family obligations in the same way that Frankenstein does she almost loses a friend I don't know yeah I think that's interesting that we don't see Hazel make the same sort of like ego-driven mistake. Right. Does she ever make a miscalculation or like do something bad based on ego? Based on ego? That's true. I don't think she does. I'm trying to think of like, is she ego-driven? Like, I don't think she thinks that she's a singularly talented physician. Right. She cares more. Yeah. And perhaps it's because so much of it is kept from her that she is constantly working at getting it rather than celebrating that she has it. And so I wonder if in the second book, I feel like there's like a couple of open questions there because she's going to need to take down Beecham. Yeah. And so does she make herself into a monster to take down a right. monster? Because I think that is like to the gothic point of like, I feel like for the end of gothic novels, mm. like people are blind, people's fiancés yeah. are dead. <laughs> like she actually hasn't sacrificed that much yet. And I feel like that's because like she and Beecham actually haven't gone head to head yet. We just had the reveal. Right. I I don't want to do too much predicting because I know that it's going to come out in a week and we're just going to be proven wrong. <laughs> uh, but what if we're proven right? If it, if it does go that way, I think it's got to be like murder-suicide. Like I think that she would, in figuring out, like if she becomes a monster and then figures out how to end him, she will also have to end herself. And like that would be a pretty gothic ending. Right. But it's not going to be like Beecher is replaced by the feminine form of Beecham. Like, I don't think that can happen. Yeah, I think it's more of like a phrase of nine going after his own monster sort of situation. Right. And then they destroy each other. Yeah. I do think the book does a good job with like light foreshadowing. That is really satisfying. Mm -hmm. One of the opening scenes is the doctor with one eye replacing a molar, like taking a molar from a poor person and then giving it to a rich person. Right. You're like, oh, wait, that is what the whole book (laughs) is. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really good with the escalation yeah. of that kind of thing, too. Like, it starts light and builds up and escalates until you're replacing whole bodies. We haven't discussed the ship of Theseus, James. Yeah, I, literally, that was the next <laughs> word out of my mouth. In the, I was going to say in the whole ship of Theseus kind of way. Is Beecham still Beecham, having replaced all the parts? And at what point did he cease to be Beecham? Well, I also can't tell... If he's replaced all of his own parts or that was his initial experimentation before he found the cure for immortality. Because it seems like the 
the liquid is what saves you and it's not that you have to replace your parts. Mm. Right, that he's like choosing to replace his parts to make them better or I don't know. I, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. It was just funny because Ship of Theseus is getting a lot of traction right now because it was also in WandaVision. Oh, yeah, I don't watch WandaVision. I mean, Ship of Theseus always gets traction for different reasons. Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts revived interest in it and uh, there's always comes in all the time i think that's where the ship of theseus metaphor wasn't perfect that element of like well he's not replacing all of his body parts so we aren't actually creating a ship of theseus but also part of it is to just show that her fiance is an idiot <laughs> right. right he just wants a promenade <laughs> just wants a promenade why doesn't she like promenading more I think like this is an interesting place to talk about gender roles because it seems like the fiance is leaning into that more like he really enjoys clothing and being seen and he has sort of adopted the things that are traditionally feminine and she has adopted the things that are traditionally masculine mm-hmm. and not just coded as masculine like she's literally not allowed to be a surgeon and wants to be and has to dress like a guy so she adopts all the gendered positions that she was not born with in a novel and he seems to be leaning into the other things like marriage and the gossip things and all the stuff that are supposed to be the realm of the feminine in early 19th century scotland he's really into and she is not at all Mm -hmm. i was surprised at how quickly the her dressing as a dude to go to med school that plot line came up and i thought that was going to be most of the plot and then she was found out on like the second week of school. Well, they needed a way that she and the resurrection man were going to need to know each other. This speaks to like one of my things where it's like love triangles. I like them to have a little more stakes. And I would think that like your cousin who you grew up with and in many ways you know each other very well. Like he, he just was presented in every way as completely frivolous. Yeah. And then I think it was also interesting. Again, like the book is like very into the foreshadowing piece, but like when they go to the theater and then there's a whole dance where, like, the thing is, is, like, a woman thinks her husband is back from war, but she's actually dancing with the devil. <laughs> um, which then, of course, like, foreshadows that her, <laughs> her fiancé is going to turn Jack in and accuse him of murders. And then because of his class, people just assume that he's right. Yeah. There was also, like, the interesting bit about how as they grow older, they're forced to occupy gendered positions where... Like the fiance says, you dreaming of being a surgeon was totally fine when we were younger, but now we're old. Like you can't just do that anymore. And so there's, yeah, there's like a really interesting little conversation about gender roles and age and class that's happening here. One thing that I wish there'd been more of is like, there's a lot of shoulds without consequences. Like I think if he had been more like you doing this threatens my status like if you do that then what happens to our children yeah and maybe that's part of him he just he's a frivolous person and so he views everyone's interests as frivolous <laughs> like isn't very deep yeah it is consistent with his character for sure right, right right but like he was just like oh yeah take the take the test we'll we'll see what happens yeah <laughs> which is like an element of it was just like a, it was very interesting <laughs> yeah yeah here's an embarrassing misread that i had when i was reading it um and I think that this is me, like, wanting to project some values onto Hazel that maybe she doesn't hold intrinsically. When she's offered to uh, take the vial and become immortal, and she says, the only reason I'd have for taking that vial is to see if it prevents hangings. I thought that was, like, a statement to, like, protect all prisoners and that she was going to, like, protect all people from being hanged and that it wasn't a... 
It wasn't about immortality. It was about social justice. And then it took me like three or four pages after that line to be like, oh, wait, she was only talking about Jack. Like that was just a, she just wants to protect him. It wasn't a grand statement about medicine should be used for healing and protecting people, not for ego-driven things. I don't know. I mean, maybe it was in the subtext, but I don't think it was. No, I don't think it was. I think it was about her boyfriend. (laughs) Yeah. But I have to think, like, if you got this vial, because he also said that one drop of it can prevent, like, organ rejection when he's doing surgeries for, like, uteruses and Mm -hmm. stuff. You have to think, like, one drop could solve a lot of ills. Like, that is the cure for Roman fever. Yeah, that's true. The thing that they're trying to cure the entire time. Like, he has the cure and he's not giving it to anyone. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it is the cure, but I'm assuming that if it can prevent you from, like, your new uterus rejecting it. Right. Then it can solve whatever Roman fever is supposed to be, like a smallpox variant. Give you new skin in the area, in the affected area or whatever it needs to do. Yeah. So I looked up if Roman fever is real, and I don't think it is. Oh, interesting. Roman fever was a name for malaria for a while. Malaria does not have the same symptoms. Like It does not give you stab wounds on the back. I mean, it's a very clever little etymology she gave it then, if that's not real. I know. Well, I think there's also just something there around... Again, like telegraphing things like the book is ultimately going to have a betrayal. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And so I thought that was really clever. And I think they use the term romantic a lot. Like Scotland is so romantic. There's like a chapter where they're just like, here's like Scotland is amazing and it's very romantic. And he's like, I prefer the romantic term of like resurrection man. (laughs) And I think it's just interesting to compare like the Roman fever versus the romanticism of like language and like the countryside yeah it's just an interesting contrast of like the different meanings of roman meanings of romantic like how like romantic languages are different than being like being romantic which is different than like romantic ways to kill people (laughs) right right and this was a romantic novel Mm -hmm. in at least two of the ways yeah the the love story way and the focus on emotions and emotional experience and subjecthood and intuition yeah Yeah, the only other thing that I have in my notes to discuss is it does seem like it's a very early 19th century ethical code of utilitarianism. Like if you can make this life better, that may be the way to maximize happiness is to take people who are already miserable and make people who aren't miserable happy. And so take the poor people, take their organs, give them to people who... Mm -hmm. Which is also like a Malthusian kind of situation where... Like in Malthus's book about population, in addition to the famous thing he said about how resources are going to run out and population grows exponentially and production of resources grows arithmetically. And so there needs to be some culling of the population or else it's going to reach an inflection point and lead to some sort of mass extinction event type of thing. In that, he implies, actually, he doesn't just imply, he, he straight up says, like, we should keep our poor people in really crappy conditions to make sure that the population doesn't grow and that they are put in situations where they die before they have kids or that they're sick or whatever to prevent this inflection point from happening for as long as possible. And there seems to be, like, that exact utilitarian, messed up Malthusian ethics running through this book. Like, these characters aren't evil in some abstract way. Like, this is actually a way of thinking in the early 19th century. Mm -hmm. Although then I think there's an interesting contrast with, I just listened to the 
if books could kill episode of the population bomb mm. that then happened like in like the 90s or something where a very similar thing was being said yeah um about population control um in third world countries so we're not we're not getting better at that no. But I do think there's, to your point, at one point Beecher says, like, bodies littered the bases of the pyramids, my dear. All progress requires human sacrifice, and they were poor and destitute. What constitutes an okay sacrifice there? I think there's a question of who makes the sacrifice, like, so much to Mathis's point or, like, the population bomb point. Whenever these things are discussed, it's never the rich people who are then going to make the sacrifice. It's that, oh, well, poor people need to make the sacrifice on behalf of the rest of us, the educated class who are writing these treaties. Yeah, and the rich people get to make the decisions, but they're not the ones who end up doing the sacrifice. And like, as we said, this isn't abstract. This is like real. This happens and happened and still happens in the 90s. And I'm sure will happen again. Yeah. I'm also curious with the idea of like, what sacrifice is worth what? Like, were the pyramids worth all of those bodies? Was the World Cup worth all of those bodies hot take no no of course the answer is no (laughs) (laughs) you should not have to kill thousands of migrant workers in order to throw a world cup we we are all complicit in this but like i think that there's an argument by the people who are throwing the world cup fifa is that what they are they're like yeah this brings people together it brings people together internationally i think it's the same thing like any sort of like abusive conditions you have for your workers like like visual effects companies or like any sort of thing where you abuse your power just like but they're bringing all these people together like they need to accept sacrifices for the greater good but it's never people who are in power like sacrificing their bottom line for the greater good right honestly i thought there was going to be more gore in this book Mm -hmm. she doesn't actually do anything that i would say a surgeon does like everything that she does is more of like being an actual doctor Maybe I don't understand what the difference between a surgeon and a doctor is, but I don't think surgeons necessarily treat people who have, like, smallpox. Right. She wasn't cutting people open. Yeah. She does, I mean, this is also not what surgeons do, but she oversees a birth. Yeah, I I thought there was going to be more actual gore in the book. Like, someone would come to her without an arm, and she'd have to, like, figure that out or something. Yeah, or, like, take out an appendix or something. Like, she's very good at stitches. We know that, and we see that. Right. And that's what surgeons do, I think. Okay. Are we ready for an IB question? Yes. So sometimes at the end of these episodes, we take a question from an IB paper two assignment and we apply it to the novel that we've read and we see if we could write a decent IB level essay on the YA novel. Our question this time is, discuss the role of education and or learning in the widest sense in the work that you have studied. Okay. Well, she uh, goes to school in this. So, <laughs> like, we don't need to think about learning in a, in a wide sense. I think that we could take at least three characters and do case studies on them and think about, like, why they learn and why they take their education seriously or, like, what they think the role of education is in the book. I mean, Hazel's a protagonist. She seems to uh, want learning for its own sake. Like, she's obsessed with the knowledge itself. But there's also this level of she wants to do it to help people, or at least you start getting that sense by the end of the novel that it's not just knowledge for its own sake, but that she is pointing that in a direction of service. So the second character that I think we look at is Beecham, who similarly really loves knowledge for its own sake and pursues it single-mindedly on its own, just like he's Victor Frankenstein in a very literal way. And... Uh, 
he like similarly to Hazel, where Hazel has this bend towards service, he has this bend towards control and power. And then the third character is the surgeon with one eye, uh, who seems to pursue knowledge and education for like he's training employees. So there's like a practical sort of service element to it, but it's more for like practical reasons and application exclusively. Like you only learn something if it's for application, not if it's like theoretically interesting or anything like that. Um, and so you get the sense that he's not going to be somebody that innovates on the science, but he's going to be a good teacher within the science that already exists. Um, and that's sort of like an industrialization theme to it where he's the way he treats education is as though he's training employees like future employees not necessarily citizens or lifelong learners but people who will work at hospitals and stuff yeah and i think that what you're also communicating in those three characters is also the difference between like education and learning Mm -hmm. because there's this big discussion in the book about like the education system and going through it and who is authorized to go through the system versus anyone can learn and especially an idea of like doing a hands-on learning where you are learning from your mistakes and then like iterating on it. I think that the book, to your earlier point that we had earlier in our talk, there's a stronger message around the importance of learning versus education. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily that we want to go like (laughs) anti-vax, but like there are times when you are going operating outside of the system where you can find innovation and discovery. Yeah. And it's interesting that because the person with the most knowledge in the book is also the one that uses it for control, that does help develop those themes of gatekeeping in institutions of learning and education. If he's the character who is in control of the knowledge, then the knowledge is necessarily gatekept. So education and learning are ways of exploring that theme as well. Like you you said, like who gets access to these things and who is able to occupy different positions within the culture. And I think also there's an element of learning is curiosity that comes across in the book, which mostly comes through her fiance, Bernard, where he's like, oh, I solved the ship of Theseus. I answered the question (laughs) and we're all done now. (laughs) Like the the quickest philosophical argument I've ever seen. (laughs) He's like, at the halfway point, it's no longer the ship of Theseus. And then his father's like, good job, son. (laughs) Done. You solved the philosophical riddle. Yeah. He's like the least intellectually curious character in any book. Right. Versus the other characters in the book we see learning and growing. Right. Jack wants to learn. Hazel, obviously. Yeah, I guess Jack is an interesting one. Like in my my idea of the three case studies, Jack is outside of that. But he's definitely curious. Like he is outside of the systems of power and he learns quickly how to be a resurrection man. He learns quickly how to be a theater stagehand. And he also doesn't ignore, I mean, this is why Jack is like the one that makes, he's he's the most likable guy in the book because he learns things, but also doesn't ignore the emotional, I don't know, like intuitive part of himself, which yeah, some of these other characters do. Well, I think that's something that where he and Hazel have a really good relationship is they're both learners and teachers, Yeah, right? Like he teaches her how to get a dead body <laughs> out of the ground. <laughs> And she teaches him how to ride a horse. Like there are other like emotional stakes of things that they learn from each other and grow. But I think in a practical sense, like he respects her as a teacher and she respects him as a teacher. Yeah. And they respect each other as learners. And which is a much different relationship than she has with Bernard, which is like no learning. Yeah. Or with Beecham. Or Beecham, yeah. Beecham like respects her as a learner, but he he doesn't respect her as a teacher. Like she's a curiosity to him. 
She's an experiment. She and so he still occupies that that position of control in his relationship with her because of a lot of reasons. Right. And also there's the limiting who is it appropriate to learn from? Well, it's not a woman. It's not a poor person. Yeah. And Jack occupying the lower position within class, I guess, is able to enter this relationship with more humility and that they can find mutual respect because they he occupies the position of power of man and she occupies position of power as wealth. And there's a middle ground to be found there in the teaching learning relationship in the power that exists in all pedagogy. Yeah. All right. I think we've done it. Okay. For next month, should we pick something that's similar in this vibe of like underappreciated women? Yeah. Sounds good. I keep on seeing lessons in chemistry around. James, what do you think of lessons in chemistry? I mean, I think we've both seen it around. It was on like every list last year. I have not read it yet, and I think the reason I have not read it yet is because it gave me serious love hypothesis vibes, and I don't need more of that kind of, like, sexy lit in my life, so I was going to skip it. But you told me over a text message that she was aware that it was giving off those kinds of vibes and that that was misrepresenting the book. Yeah. And having read the summary now, it does seem like it would be perfect for us. Well, I think there's also an interesting conversation here for us to discuss like book covers in different geographies because I guess she really liked the covers in other countries and not the US because this one is meant to look like Love Hypothesis, but this one clearly is not actually Kylo Ren fan fiction. Right. And Love Hypothesis was, I think, meant to look like YA novel stuff. And then it was like a sneaky romance novel. I don't expect them to have like a cartoon on the cover. Cartoon Kylo Ren. Cartoon Kylo as a Ren. a tenured professor. Yeah. Anyway, I am totally up for reading Lessons in Chemistry. It, I've only heard good things. It's like crushing it on Goodreads. And right now I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Bonnie Garmus. And it looks like she's 66 years old. And this was her debut novel. I love that. I love that for her. That is straight up inspirational. Okay, I'm really happy we're reading this one. Let's do it. All right, this has been Literary Connections, and it was hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and were produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. See you there. Oh my god. Wait, his name isn't Beecher, it's Beecham. Oh, F. It's Beecham the whole time. We're so sorry.